Making our way through the Old Testament. Today we're looking at the Exodus narrative, the Exodus story, which uh, is contained in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then is retold in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy probably being a, a reframing of the story uh, after the exile. Um, and basically the story has a big kind of a halt at Mount Sinai, and then we have from the middle of uh, Exodus, all of Leviticus, and half of Numbers, legal things, laws, rules, regulations, and then the story will continue. Uh, the other thing we're wanting to do is also see is there any uh, historical anchors, any archaeology, and this is uh, incredibly uh, controversial, particularly in this period, because there is no hard evidence. And so then the discussion becomes more one in terms of, of plausibility, so we'll look at that today. Exodus opens after a four-century-plus gap after the book of Genesis closes. Uh, it is the book of Exodus itself that actually gives us that number. Uh, Exodus 12, 40, we find this. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt, I remember Joseph brought his family there, uh, was 430 years. And so we kind of get that period just kind of summarized real quick. Uh, the gap is then summarized further by another single verse in the books of Exodus, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 6, we get this little explanation. Joseph died. All of his brothers died. The whole generation died off. Okay, that, that gets us maybe 20 years. So what about the rest of it? Well, the Israelites were fruitful and prolific, multiplied like rabbits, okay? <laughs> Grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, one of the issues in the, bo in the book of Exodus, the Exodus story, is, uh, is the numbers there, because some of the numbers are astronomically high. So we get an image here of just the group kind of becoming a dominant force. Uh, the period comes to an end, and the story of the Exodus actually begins with a change that happens in Egypt. And actually, we have some historical anchors, uh, two of them, two possibilities what this change could have been. Um, the change is who is ruling the country. One power ceases, another power takes over, and it's the shift in power that seems to have an effect on the story. So in uh, 1, 8 through 12, we get these words. A new king, or what would the Egyptian for king be? Pharaoh. A new Pharaoh is of Egypt. It's interesting that, that across the millennia, anytime somebody conquered Egypt and they took over, they called themselves Pharaohs. Remember Cleopatra? Yeah, uh, she was actually Greek because the Ptolemies had actually taken over the country, but she was, you know, for temporarily was a pharaoh. Uh, did not know Joseph, did not know the Jewish people. He said to the people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. So they had become a threat. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase. And in the event of war, and, and this is sort of a segue into one of the explanations of, of this, uh, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the fear expressed here is that the Jews would be allied with the enemies of Egypt. And there actually is a historical period that that would fit in. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built cities of Pharaoh, Pithom and Ramses, which we both, both those have actually been ex excavated. So the Exodus narrative is going to cover a period of roughly 50 years 
of which the sort of common story is for 40 years they were what? Lost. Took a right, uh, wrong turn somewhere out there. And, just get, and they're actually not because for 38 years they're actually in a location called Kadesh Barnea. So they're only wandering for really about two years. Uh, we go from the story of Moses and the exodus out of Egypt until the Hebrews arrive in the promised land. Um, the Torah is going to end with Moses looking over the promised land but not allowed to go in. And then the story will continue with Joshua as they enter the land. Now, dating this is incredibly problematic. And much ink has been spilt. Uh, some of the archaeological evidence points to the 1400s BCE. This is re referred to as the early dating. There's an early dating and a late dating. Uh, most scholars will go with the late dating, but there's a group that argues for this. And there's something very, very attractive about this uh, early dating that we want to look at. Um, but most of the evidence actually points about two centuries later down to the 1200s. Uh, who was the pharaoh of the Exodus? It uh, doesn't say in the Bible, but uh, Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten <laughs> Commandments. Yeah, uh, everything says that. Uh, that's the best guess, Ramses, because uh, one of the cities built is the city of Ramses. Now, there's a Ramses I, a Ramses II, a Ramses III, but most people would think probably Ramses II. Uh, so the early dating is going to date the Exodus to a specific time marker and one we can identify with cer certainty. It, it's anchored to the building of Solomon's temple, which we know pretty much when that happened. Uh, temples believed to have been uh, built in about the year seven, uh, 970. Uh, the dating is not found in the Exodus story itself, but is found in another document, 1 Kings, which is actually written over a thousand years later, which might raise some, some issues about how accurate you are after a thousand years. Uh, 1 Kings 6, 1, we get this. In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. So it's going to allow you to kind of work backwards from that. So if Solomon's reign begins in the year 970, the fourth year of his reign is 966. We're pretty solid on that. And if that's correct, and the Exodus was 480 years earlier, which the writer of Kings thinks it was, this would date the Exodus to about 1450 B.C. This is the early dating. Now, it so happens that archaeologically, there was something going on very interesting at this time, that if, it, if this is the time, we can help explain the story and the way the story is told. Uh, again, this is the early dating, earlier the two possible events. Uh, the piece of history, uh, the piece of archaeology uh, that supports this period and might explain the business that you got a group of people from outside Egypt who come into Egypt. They succeed phenomenally with the help of the Pharaoh and the government. But then a new Pharaoh comes and they fall out of favor and then they're oppressed. What would account for that? Well, there's something called the Hyksos occupation of Egypt. Sometimes confused with what's called the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples are during the time of uh, Ramses. The Hyksos are actually in the 1400s. They are a group that invaded all along Palestine, all along the northern shore of Egypt. Uh, they were just kind of like a horde that came down. Happened a lot in the ancient world. Uh, and they happened to control Egypt just at the time that the Bible says Joseph entered Egypt and the 400-year period 
that they're there. So that raises some interesting questions for people. Uh, and they lose out, the, the Egyptians actually um, cast out the Hyksos and reestablish themselves as an independent nation right about the time of 1450 B.C. So if you're an archaeologist, would that interest you? Yeah, that would interest you a lot. So uh, s there's been a lot of work done on this. Uh, this is the area of the Hyksos. They come out of Asia Minor up there north, and they kind of just swarm down, uh, kind of conquering everything in sight. One of the reasons they can do this is that Egypt is particularly weak at this point. So around 1720 B.C., they come down. This is solid archaeology. Uh, they bring to an end the middle kingdom. Remember, it was the old kingdom, and then they were destroyed by invaders, and time passes. There's the middle kingdom. They're destroyed by the invaders, the Hyksos, interim, and then they have the, the, the new kingdom. So this brings the middle kingdom to an end, uh, and they rule the country for about 200 years as pharaohs. Uh, now, if... This is a big if. If Joseph and the Israelites came to Egypt during the Hyksos period, then who is the Pharaoh that Joseph would have worked with? He would not have been Egyptian. He would have been Hyksos. Uh, and that could explain why Joseph and his descendants, because they are also outsiders from the land, and a government that's come in and taken over a country might want to work more with outsiders than with than people who are in internal. Uh, they rise to a prominent position, as the narrative indicates, like the Hyksos. They are outsiders. But then a new king rose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. They fall out of favor with this new king, and they are then kicked out or uh, put into slavery. It's attractive. It's a very attractive. Uh, but the problem is that it, the date does not fit other aspects of the story and does not fit the other archaeological data. So most people do not go with this explanation. This has led to the other dating, which is said about uh, not for 1500s or 1400s, but about the 1200s under Ramses II. There's a small minority who will go about 30 years later under Ramses III, but probably Ramses II. This is the late dating. And there is archaeological evidence. Most of the archaeological evidence would support this time period. Uh, as well as the Exodus story itself. Remember this? It's interesting that the Exodus narratives talks about the building of two particular cities, and one of the cities is named Ramesses. Okay. And from the Egyptian records, we know when these cities were built, and these cities happened to be built in the 1200s. Uh, so the dates of the Exodus story uh, would date it to the Pharaoh Seti I, Ramses II, roughly about 1250 B.C., this is why Cecil B. DeMille would put Ramesses there and why most, most of the stuff that you read would do that because uh, that's where the majority. Again, the dating is circumstantial. Uh, there is zero, not a zip, nothing, hard data uh, for the Exodus itself. They've never dug up anything in Egypt that says, aha, the Jews were here. Uh, it would be lovely if they could do that, but we don't have that yet. So what we have is an absence of evidence so all the evidence is circumstantial. You kind of try to build the most plausible story. There are some reasons to doubt historically at least some parts of the story. And this is widely accepted among historians, even uh, uh, very conservative historians. What is problematic is the numbers given in the Exodus story. Uh, does anybody remember the numbers that came out of Egypt? More than 2 million. More than 3 million, 4 million, 4 million to 6 million. 
600,000 men and their wives and their children and a whole bunch of other people who weren't Jews and all their livestock and their animals and everything. Now, would that be a significant event? <laughs> when the country only has a population of less than 2 million. That counts everybody, according to the, the archaeology of time. So here's what we have in, uh, in Exodus 12. Remember, in the Bible, numbers are often symbolic as much as real. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, uh, besides uh, women and children. And I'm thinking in the ancient world, families tended to be more than a single child. Uh, mixed crowd also went up with them. Uh, the indication here is that it's not just the Jews, but others have gone. By the way, a lot of the archaeological evidence indicates that when they come into the Promised Land, it's not just Jews. There are some coming from the north, there's some coming from the east, there's some coming up from Egypt and others. Livestock, great numbers, flocks, herds, 600,000 men, children, mixed crowd. So, sizable force leaving. As the story stands, the conservative number is going to put you at a, about uh, 4 million, upwards of 6 million. They're going to travel through the Sinai wilderness where there's nothing to eat, nothing to drink, except manna and the occasional rock that Moses hits, which God didn't like. Uh, they stay in one location for 38 years, Kadesh Barnea. Uh, if this group, to give you just a, a sense of the size, if they marched 10 abreast, it would be 10, uh, 300 miles long. So we're talking substantial group here. Uh, it would take nearly three weeks to pass. If, if they marched 24 hours a day, it would take three weeks to pass certain points. That's, that's what the numbers would indicate if you take them literally. All this without leaving a single historical trace, even the records of Egypt. And by the way, they documented everything, okay? Uh, might not document it accurately, but they did document it. They would lose battles, and they'd write it up as a big victory, but, but they <laughs> documented it. Uh, or the archaeology of Sinai. And by the way, in the desert, stuff lasts forever. Okay, Dead Sea Scrolls, all the New Testament manuscripts that of, of any value that are ancient, papyrus, all come from Egypt. It simply just stays forever. So, further complicated is the fact that the population is somewhere between 2 or 3 million is the best <laughs> guess. Uh, if you've ever been to Egypt, you know Egypt is 1,500 miles long, and how wide is it? About 3 miles wide. Because you basically got the lower part where the water is, and you know, and then you've got beyond that is like nada. Okay, there's nothing out there except the occasional Bedouin. Uh, so the lack of any direct archaeological evidence uh, and the improbable numbers have led many to make this statement: there's nothing historical about the Exodus story. It is simply a narrative. It is simply a story. Um, I think most scholars would say no. There is some evidence, but it's a little bit different from that. Uh, so the real issue is not did it happen, because nobody thinks that a Moses character leading a group of a few thousand out of Egypt is historically improbable. Actually, Egypt documents that kind of event happening with some regularity. People are moving in. People are moving out all the time. What's problematic? The numbers. Yeah, simply the numbers, the math. Uh, I need to put the Hebrew font on this computer so you can read this, but read between the lines. The problem is LF, which is usually translated thousand, but some sharp scholars have realized that it can also mean clan. Now, is there a difference between 600,000 men and, and uh, 600 clans? 600 clans is maybe four to 5,000 people. 
So this opens up for some people, ah, now that might explain the story. Uh, we're going to number somewhere around four or 5,000, a more realistic number. It's attractive to historians. The problem is, there's always a problem, isn't there? Every time you get a good answer. The problem is, the book of Numbers repeats the number and gives it with more accuracy. And that version supports the reading of 1,000 in Exodus. Here's the number. The whole number was 603,550. <laughs> now, I can't do a lot with clans with that. So, on the other hand, one of the things that, that a lot of scholars have noticed is there's an awful lot of the Exodus story that reads true to ancient times. Uh, the story has very good knowledge of the geography, the natural conditions, the delta, the Sinai Peninsula, the, ne the Negev, and the Transjordan. And information that would be accurate to about the 1200s BC. So the story has a lot in it that this screams, you know, there, there's something behind this. Uh, in addition, there's evidence in the archaeology of Palestine. If you go to the other end of the Exodus, when they begin to settle, now we begin to have a lot of archaeology to back this up. Uh, what we know is that the Canaanite civilization in the, the about 1250, 1230, the Canaanite city-state civilization collapsed catastrophically. And it collapsed because of invaders coming from outside. Now, the invaders were coming out of Egypt, out of the western deserts, and from the north. So it wasn't just one group, but the... They had a catastrophic collapse of the culture of this time period. We see this in the Armano, Terrell Amarna letters. Uh, uh, you know, if when, you, when you make letters this way, they do tend to last forever. Uh, this supports the earlier dating for the Exodus, uh, the 1300s. Let, let the king, my lord, learn that the chief of the Aparu. Remember that word? Okay, that little hash mark in the front is pronounced as an H. Aparu, Hebrew. It's the word Hebrew. Uh, by the way, if you write Hebrew in Hebrew, it's Aparu. It's the same word. Uh, has risen in arms against the lands. This is, this, the Tarmon, this is a Canaanite king in Palestine saying these Hebrews have invaded his land and they're just wrecking havoc with stuff. Would that interest you historically? Okay, it's interesting. The term Aparu, same word as Hebrew in the Bible, term used to Israelites early times. For example, in Genesis, we have this uh, reference uh, the one who had escaped came and told Abram. And what is Abram? A Hebrew. Remember what the word Hebrew means? Nomad, wander. My, another verse says, my father was a wandering Armenian uh, running around out there. Um, so both words are actually, it's not even that they're, they're, they're the same cognate. They're actually the, the exact same word. Uh, so at the end of the Exodus, there we have archaeological support for the arrival and settlement of large numbers of people into Palestine, destabilizing the city-state society so that it collapses. Uh, we have people coming in from various directions, some of which would uh, reflect some, some uh, Egyptian because of the names and stuff that they can read. This is then followed by roughly two centuries in Palestine of that the society does not reconstitute itself. It appears to be chaos. Do you remember what happens after they take, in the Bible, after they take the land? There's a period called the Judges. And what is it? It's a period of chaos. And it lasts roughly 200 years. Uh, roughly parallels the period of Exodus, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. Now, do you have any hard evidence? No. 
what you have is a lot of evidence that simply says the story as it stands is historically plausible. No smoking gun, but there's nothing in the story that would scream it's just pure, purely made up. Uh, so in balance, the historical consensus, if you're reading the archaeological stuff, is that the numbers are probably symbolic. And in the ancient world, uh, you all familiar with what's called a preacher count? <laughs> also known as a Mark Craig count? Yeah. <laughs> round up, multiply by two, round up again, double it. You know, it used to be a good number. In the ancient world, numbers were symbolic. So the idea of blessing, you know, one of the ways you're blessed is that you get numbers, you know. So uh, when you get big numbers, it can be symbolic of simply God has blessed them. Uh, we have that many times in the Bible. But the Exodus itself is plausible. Doesn't mean it happened. Doesn't mean we have proof of it. But, you know, there's nothing there that would say that it couldn't have happened. Uh, by the way, they're still digging, looking. Uh, they joined others in Palestine as well as others migrating from other places. Here's the archaeological consensus. What it looks like happened in the 1200s is that there was a forced migration of people all over the area. And into, into Palestine came people from many directions who were Semites, just like the Jews were. There's evidence that some of them did in, fee, in fact come from Egypt. Some came from the Western deserts from Jordan today. A lot, probably the biggest group, came down from the south and came in. The civilization, which was already weak, destabilized, collapsed. There's anarchy for a while. And then when the, what we you know historically, the first thing that then emerges is the Jewish state under David, which is roughly the story as we have it in the Bible. Uh, the problem is, don't get hung up on the numbers. Uh, those are not good. Um, so here's the story. We're just going to, here's my deal with you. At 5 till, we're going to quit, no matter where we are. Okay, that's the deal. Okay. Uh, a lot of stuff here, and we do want to look at some stuff. Moses' birth, new Pharaoh tries to control the population. This is just, this is just the story. This is the narrative. Uh, but the narrative is interesting archaeologically in some other ways. Um, he's placed on the river by his family, found and raised by the house of Pharaoh. Familiar with that story? You don't have to be Jewish to be familiar with that story. If you're a Syrian, you know this story. And it's not a story about Moses. Okay? Moses' birth story has some elements in common, not totally, but some elements in common in the ancient world, especially the birth of the Syrian king, Sargon II. Now, what we know historically was there was a series of stories in which great leaders who would lead their people at difficult times and establish the people as kind of like a new kingdom were abandoned in the river in a little pitch basket, were found, and then were raised. So that's actually a common theme that's out there. Now, does that mean it couldn't have happened to Moses? No, but it means that, that this is a story not just that. So... This is the birth of Sargon II as told in one of those cuneiform tablets. I am Sargon, strong king, king of Akkad, modesty. Uh, my mother was the high priestess. My father, I do not know. My mother, a high priestess, he's proud of that, conceived and bore me in secret. That tracks with the Moses story. She placed me in a reed basket with bitumen and caulked my hatch. We're hanging in there. She abandoned me to the river, with which I could not escape. The river carried me along to Aki, the water drawer who brought me. Aki, the water drawer, when immersing his bucket, lifted me up, raised me as his adopted son. Sound vaguely familiar? So one of the deals there is, is it history, is it narrative, is it story, is it kind of, we have no idea. 
Moses is raised in an Egyptian in the court of Pharaoh. Strikingly, strikingly, Moses is not a Hebrew name. It's Egyptian. You ever heard of a Pharaoh called Tutmoses? Okay. Moses is an Egyptian name, which is interesting. After killing an Egyptian overseer, he flees to the land of Midian. Now, where the heck is Midian? And that gets interesting, too. Um, this is traditionally Midian, but where's Mount Sinai? And the burning bush. So he's with, he's with Jethro and the flocks and his wife, who are Midianites. And, the, the, and historically what we know is actually Midian is, and there was a lot of flexibility, it was not a firm country with firm borders. So Mount, and some people look for Mount Sinai here. But all the evidence indicates that the story means to say that Mount Sinai is in the southern part of what we would call the Sinai Peninsula. And probably the best place that we know of is the one that's identified there with St. Catherine's Cathedral today. Moses saves Zipporah and her sisters at the well. Remember what the well is? Best singles bar there is, okay? <laughs> if you want to meet women, where do you go? You go to the well. So we have this whole series of people. Uh, he marries her. He works with her father, Jethro, tending sheep. Uh, by the way, remember Cain and Abel? Remember those other stories? What is it we don't like? We don't like farmers. What is it we like? Shepherds. What is Moses doing? Tending sheep. He lives in the land of Midian for 40 years. Don't take that literally. 40 means a complete number, uh, like the number seven. The Hebrews call out for God for deliverance. God sees and hears. God calls Moses at the burning bush. The divine name, this is called the Tetragammon, the four letters. Uh, Jews will not write this nor speak it. If you go to Jewish synagogue, they will write it YY, Yod Yod. And they will say an entirely different word, Adonai. Because the name of God is so holy, it is never to be said, it is never to be written. Uh, but some Bibles, you hear the word Yahweh? Uh, of course, there were no vowels there, but we, we supply vowels. And if you're German, and you can't pronounce a Y. If you're German, what do you say instead of a Y? J. And you have the consonants, but you supply different vowels. You get Jehovah. So that's where Jehovah comes from. 19th century Germany. So the name, interesting enough, there are many traditions in the Bible. The Tetragammon, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is only associated with the Exodus story in Sinai. So the name appears to come from this story and from the Sinai incident. Uh, Moses requests that my people go. Pharaoh resists. Ten plagues. The Passover. We're moving right along. Pharaoh releases the children. Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues them. They cross the Red Sea, right? No. Mistranslation. It's the Reed Sea. Now, how deep is water for reeds to grow? Now, it's much more impressive if Cecil B. De DeMille puts water 300 feet in each side. You know. But the deal is they're, they're, they're actually crossing a marsh. Um, and by the way, in Egypt to this day, certain times of the year, if the wind blows a certain way, blows very strongly, it can actually drive the water back and you can actually walk over that. So that and the plagues and a lot of other stuff in the story still happen. Of course, part of the story is they happen at a very convenient time. Uh, God cares for us in the wilderness. We get all these images. God parts the sea, he destroys Pharaoh, we get manna, we get quails, we get uh, water from the rock, we get pillar cloud by day, uh, fire by night, 
How can you get lost in the wilderness when you've got a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? You can't. All this is imagery, for God is guiding them every step of the way. Uh, the journey, Egypt to Sinai, takes three months. They spend one year at Sinai and then 40 years to complete the journey. And all these jokes about them being directionally challenged. Uh, not really. 38 years. Remember, why were they there 38 years? Do you remember? Yeah, we've got to kill them off. Yeah, the, the generation that went to the edge of the land and got spooked because there's giants there. They're going to die off before they go in. Uh, so we have no idea where the route was, except there's some names mentioned in others and deal. But Kadesh Barnea is actually in the land of Israel today. Uh, and so they go in and they come back out and they camp there until everybody dies off. Uh, by the way, they don't just die off, they're killed off. There's um, a series of revolts. So Moses goes up the mountain. Now, some traditions call it Sinai. Some traditions call it Horeb. Same story. So we, we don't know what the name was. This depends on the tradition. He receives the Ten Commandments. He comes down to find his brother with the golden calf. You've got to love your family, right? <laughs> He's receiving the Ten Commandments. What's his brother doing? Making a golden calf. God love it. He destroys the tablets that God made. He goes back up the mountain. This time, he has to create them. God's not pulling that trick twice. Uh, they contain the relationship with God, the relationship with the neighbor. The Ten Commandments, clearly within the Bible and clearly within tr Jewish tradition, become the centerpiece. Everything is built around that. Every law in the Torah is in, in some way of explaining or extrapolating out of one of the ten. Relationship with God, relationship with each other. Uh, the ten words, the Jews call them. Uh, Y'all know that story? They don't call them commandments. It's ten statements, ten words, because here's the first, in Jewish tradition, here's the first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's number one. It's not a commandment, it's a statement. Everything else is predicated on that. Number two, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make images, and you roll from that. So it's just a little different interpretation. We have it three times. We got 24 and 20. God gives it 34. We get them again because Moses wrecked them. And Deuteronomy 5, we have it again. It's interesting to kind of compare it. Deuteronomy is clearly updated to a later time. Uh, at this point, the story stops. We get this long narration of legal requirements. Uh, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, it's one third of the Torah. We stop at Exodus 19. The story is not going to continue until Numbers 10. So in between, lots and lots and lots. By the way, not one set of laws, many different legal sets of laws compiled together. Uh, one's called the Holiness Code, and then and there's many others there. So you get different sets of laws on the same issues. So it looks like a compilation. Uh, some of them appear to refer to a later period and show signs of having altered. Uh, much of the legislation predates Exodus. One of the interesting things archaeologically is, you've heard of Hammurabi? And we actually found carbon stone Hammurabi's legal code. It's the oldest known legal code that's ever been found. And guess what? Not everything, not even the majority, but probably close to 100 laws on that stella are word for word identical with the ones in the Torah, which indicates that they're from the same area. Now, he's 500 years earlier, but uh, you ever heard of the, what's called the, the, the lex talionis, the, the, an eye for an eye? Okay, That's in the Code of Hammurabi. 
that's pulled in word for word into the Torah. Uh, but there's some other parallels. Like Moses, Hammurabi goes up the mountain. He receives a legal code from his gods. Uh, and some of the specific ones, of course, are identical. And then, of course, a lot of them are not. A lot of them are totally unique, unique to the Jewish society. Parts of the Exodus narrative clearly seem to be reworked in light of that. And here's an example. Uh, this is in Leviticus. And within the context of the story, this would be the time of Moses. I will lay, this is God speaking, I will lay waste, I will lay your cities waste. Now, wait a minute. We don't have any cities. We aren't going to have cities for centuries. We'll make your sanctuaries desolate. Uh, what's a sanctuary? We don't have one of those. We have the tabernacle. We have the tent. I will not smell your pleasing odors. I will devastate the land that you haven't arrived in yet so that your enemies will come to settle in it. Okay. Shall be appalled at it. And you, will I, and you I will scatter among the nations. Okay. And I will unsheath the sword against you. Your land that you don't have yet shall be a desolation and your cities a waste. Now, historians read that. What does that read like? Later. Okay. Some people say, well, it could be prophecy that God is prophesying all this will happen. Uh, historians look at it, it sounds like sounds like this is later material brought in to kind of update the material so it's relevant to people later. For the land shall enjoy its Sabbath years as long as it lies desolate while you are in the land of your enemies. Is there any historical event that just jumps out at you? The Babylonian exile. Okay. So it looks like it's been updated. That, that's a, a scholarly guess. Historically, nothing of this fits Moses, but everything there fits the 500s BCE. So scholars would say they think that, that there's. Now, a little side journey here. Uh, patriarchs are all men. Turns out the women, as we heard earlier in Genesis, are very important. Did you know that the co-leader of the Exodus was a woman? Kind of gets edited out of the tradition, so I thought you might enjoy this. Exodus 15. Then the prophet, Miriam, who's she? Aaron's sister. Who's Aaron? Brother of? So she's Moses' sister. Okay. Took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is glorious, uh, triumph gloriously, horse and rider he is thrown into the sea. Uh, one of our Perkins students here was learning me that they've actually been studying this. This is believed by many scholars to be the oldest verse in the Bible. Okay? This is the oldest reference to the Exodus story. Uh, and who's singing it? A woman. Micah makes an interesting observation. Now, Micah is in the 700s. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and, wait for it, Miriam. So part of the tradition of Israel is that Miriam played a central role in the Exodus story, and it's in her lips that we get the earliest recital of that, which is interesting. Uh, the book of Numbers covers 40 years of wandering. Uh, actually, only two of wandering. Uh, but it's really the story of this generation that has to die off. They're going to be replaced by a new generation. Uh, by the way, they don't die off naturally. They rebel, large numbers die. They rebel, large numbers die. Uh, 
there's a debate and when you begin to read the materials you what you realize is there is in the bible this running debate were the the period of the exodus were those the good old days or not so much and we get this little, like, it's like kingship we get this little list here's the positive view jeremiah reflecting back thus says the lord i remember the devotion of your youth your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness Jeremiah has never read Exodus. Okay. Here's Psalm 78, negative view. How often they rebelled against me in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again. So what's the story inside the Exodus story? Well, not too flattering, actually. The Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to have eat in Egypt, the melons, the leeks, I mean, they're just getting the onions. It's having a moment, okay? But now, there's nothing at all but this stupid manna. You know. Uh, interesting. And that's not the only one, by the way. Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, no water. We detest the manna. Interesting. So there's this running debate how I think Jeremiah can look back on it longingly, uh, and, you know, but most of the tradition says, you know, it's the same people. Uh, the story of the Exodus in total three books. Uh, we get to Deuteronomy. It's an addition to the original. Uh, even its name tells us that, Deuto, second telling of the story. Uh, probably a telling of the story after the destruction in 386 from the viewpoint of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Traditionally, it's attributed to Moses. Remember, the, the Pentateuch is the five books of Moses. Interestingly, nowhere does it say that in the Bible. That's a tradition that's kind of come down. The book nowhere claims that Moses wrote it. Uh, actually, Deuteronomy looks back on Moses in the past tense, refers to him in the third person, even narrates his death. So imagine Moses saying, let me tell you how when I died. You know, okay. So it's obviously kind of from, from, uh, from later. The Pentateuch ends in an interesting place. Pentateuch is the original scriptures before the prophets are added, before the writings are added. Where are the Jews at the end of the Pentateuch, the Torah? Outside. Where are they at the end of the exile? Outside looking in. So the Torah ends at exactly the same place the Jews find themselves as the exile comes to an end and they're getting ready to go home. Many scholars think that probably is not accidental that you would think it makes it very very relevant for him the Pentateuch appears to be finalized in the sixth century now some of the traditions go back many centuries earlier but so it's it's finalized in a way so it, it rings true so next week Joshua judges first and second Samuel first and second Kings first and second Chronicles okay uh, we'll just clip a few of the the trees off look at it 5-10.